Welcome to the Maverick CPA Podcast, where we talk with industry leaders and specialists about their maverick approach to business, opportunity, and life. The show is brought to you by your podcast team, where having your own podcast is as easy as being a guest on ours. Find out more at yourpodcast.team. Now, here's your host, Jay Tompkins. Well, welcome Ronak Shaw to the Maverick CPA podcast. Ronak, glad to have you. Well, thanks for having me. Excited to do this. Ronak, you've been one of my clients now for a little bit since you started this new venture, which I think is extremely interesting because it's something that most people never think about how the world works behind the scenes. But why don't you give us a little background? Sure. It's a very kind introduction. I think probably the first time you met with me, I would uh, not have been surprised if you would have laid even odds or better than even odds on the fact that this would have never gotten off the ground. And yet here we are. So that's potentially true. That is true, but you made it happen. So we're, we're across <laughs> we did, that hurdle. <laughs> yep. So I'm in the recycling business and a lot of people might think different things about the recycling business. And I'm in one very niche aspect of it, a subset of the metals recycling industry. And probably the easiest way for me to describe what I do is to kind of walk you through what happens with an old car. Right. So I'll be honest, I think, Jay, if you or I had an old car right now, I would do everything possible to keep it running just because replacing it with a new one is extremely difficult. Very true. But in any normal time, you know, when you hit the end of life on a vehicle, so let's say you've got a, you know, 2012 Ford 500. Okay. And you're this is a little harsh, but let's say at 10 years, you're at the end of that vehicle's life. It'll get scrapped, okay? You might trade it in, but if it doesn't sell at auction, which it probably is not going to sell at auction, it'll get scrapped and sold to an auto parts salvage yard or directly to what's called an automobile shredder. Relatively few of these around the country, about 350 automobile shredders kind of throughout the United States and I'm sure over a thousand in the world. But it's a big, huge machine that you essentially toss a car in on one end and fist-sized pieces of that car, all generally separated from each other, come out the other end because in the middle is a four to 9,000 horsepower motor-driven hammer mill that just completely pulverizes it at you know anywhere up to 300 tons an hour. A car is about a ton and a half, so it just gives you a feel as to how many of these things can eat. So it's hard to believe that you know, the car that you drove around in for that long is destroyed that quickly, but that's how it works. Now, they do this because for a long time, and really for since practically the dawn of time, metal has been recycled and steel, which is the bulk of what that vehicle is made of, is easy to recover because you just run it across a magnet and it sticks to the magnet. But there was a lot of other metal in that car as well. There was the aluminum block engine, there's insulated wire, there's some copper tubing, there's a lot of zinc die cast parts, maybe a, I don't think that Ford would have this, but a magnesium steering wheel, light weighted, so that, you know, instead of weighing 22 pounds, it might weigh 12. All of that kind of comes out. And all those metals that are not steel, that are not magnetic, all kind of come out together in a weird little product that the industry calls Zorba, because it's easier to say that than copper, brass, zinc, and other metals from the shredding of an automobile. And that Zorba is the product that I buy. Now, because it's a mess of 
shredded fist size, roughly pieces of metal, all of different chem, you know, chemistries and types of metals. It's kind of useless the way it is. You can't just melt it because it's again, a mess of different metals. What I do and what levitated metals technology does is it, use a, it uses a flotation process that uses the different densities of those metals to separate them away from each other. The bulk of that product, the bulk of Zorba is aluminum, okay, technically usually an aluminum alloy of some kind, but aluminum. And its density is much less than copper or brass and zinc, and a fair bit more than things like magnesium and you know, a rubber hose with an aluminum attachment that might have gotten stuck in there. And so I can create a pretty clean aluminum product that is available and ready to be direct charged into anybody else's aluminum smelter. We don't melt ourselves into an aluminum smelter that's ready to make new cast aluminum for a 2022 Ford F-150 transmission. So that old Ford F1, you know, that Ford 500 engine block is turning into the transmission of a, you know, new truck. And I'm kind of in the middle of that supply chain. Now it's a gross simplification in a lot of ways, but that's more or less what we do. And certainly smelters, our consumers, aluminum processors love to use recycled metal, not because of the goodness of their heart, although I'm sure they are good, but because the energy cost and remelting alloy is so much less than the raw and total energy cost of, you know, mining bauxite, you know, processing it to alumina, and then, you know, getting a pure aluminum alloy, and then having to cut that aluminum with silicon and copper and other elements to make the appropriate aluminum alloy. It's just a lot easier to take an old engine and then do what little modification for chemistries you need to do to make it the right alloy for a new engine. And that fundamentally is where we sit in our supply chain. Which I think is really cool, right? I would have never thought that old cars become new cars. And it totally makes sense, though, when you think about it, because exactly what you just said, the effort it goes into mining something that is not a renewable resource, eventually you'd run out or become too expensive to even do. Not that cars aren't getting any less expensive, but most of that's marketplace driven, not necessarily cost driven, I would think anyway. So it was just very interesting and in, in to hear your story when you started this company up and, you know, we're working on building the factory and all of those things to do something what would be considered extremely niche, but applies across a huge base because, you know, how many cars are made every year, right? I mean, millions, right? Yeah, and, fewer and this there, year, unfortunately, but yes. Well, that's true, but that wasn't your fault. <laughs> you know, no, it no. had to do with those fancy little computer chips that every car is driven off of these days. So uh, that's for sure. But I also have heard that they've still made a lot of cars. They're just sitting in lots waiting on chips, right? Absolutely, so, absolutely. So of course, and we that keep just using cars as the example. Yeah, we keep using cars as an example simply because we all know and understand cars, and you know, just poking around on the internet, most people are aware of the, you know, why it's so hard to buy a new car today. So it's, it's an easy example, but cast aluminum is used in a gazillion different things, everything from medical devices to construction to, you know, just what have you. It's just that automotive is a big user of cast aluminum, secondary cast aluminum. So then and, are you selling direct to, to, describe to it? 
are you selling direct to like manufacturers or is there someone else even in between that then pushes it out to various users of the actual aluminum? Or I guess you're doing it as smelters. Yeah. So I'm selling to people that are going to melt my cast aluminum into, at a minimum, are going to melt it into aluminum ingots. But many of my customers are, in fact, themselves heavily vertically integrated. Some of them you know, are tier one suppliers to the automotive industry providing, you know, entire engines to Ford, GM, and otherwise. Now, that means that their business is far more complex than just having a big old furnace and a natural gas line. They've got, you know, high density, you know, high, high flow injection molding machines and engineering department that designs pistons and all sorts of things like that. So again, that's just vertical integration on the, on my, on my demand side, but they started many of those customers, right. That are die casting today started with just a furnace. Right. right? And then worked up the supply chain. So how do you get into something like this? Yeah. So how random people get into it, I don't know. I'll speak to my own story, which is right. randomly, I would say. I All the way back into undergraduate, I was primarily into computers, almost stereotypically so. I put myself through you know, a lot of beer and potato chips in college. As a computer consultant, I was doing software engineering projects. My only real knowledge of the metals industry was I was the chief technology officer and minority co-founder of a company called Metal Suppliers Online back in the 2000.com boom and bust. That was a business-to-business exchange for helping buyers and sellers of specialty metal alloys find each other through a proprietary database. But outside of that, I knew nothing about metals. I wound up going back to business school to have a change of career and made a fairly you know, substantial change where I was suddenly, you know, heavily into operations. And after a short stint at Intel Corporation, which was just not a great fit for me, just a very large company making very small things, I wound up in the scrap metal industry, knowing really nothing about it at all. In the industry, you know, at a company that had several large, large automobile shredders, you know, producing 60,000 tons a month of shredded steel and shipping it overseas and, you know, dry bulk carriers at each shredder, by the way, right? They had multiples of those and love the industry. It's a very hands-on go and break stuff and fix stuff and, you know, just find a way to get it done industry. And that's tons of fun. Right. It's just right. tons of fun. There's I I don't know how many industries there are like that anymore. I'm sure there's aspects of oil and gas probably at the drill site that is just that level of, you know, kind of medievalism, but it's super fun. And I love the industry and just learned more and more about it. Followed a uh, a mentor and coworker to a job in St. Louis where I got deeply involved in the technology aspect, the process technology aspect, not the information technology aspect, but the process technology aspect of the industry where all, you know, all sorts of complex recovery machines and sortation machines. And I built a bunch of big factories and kind of helped grow out a division to kind of have a 
center of excellence around that for a billion dollar organization. And as that company grew, and I kind of thought about where I came from and my own roots in terms of entrepreneurship and small scale startups, I really wanted to kind of make my mark on my own thing. You know, just apparently on a personal level, I probably enjoyed being a bigger fish in a smaller pond than vice versa. And certainly picked the smallest possible pond of one when I chose to join my own little startup. And that's how I wound up here. But really just serendipitously, I am relatively confident that my knowledge of the scrap metal industry at the time that I joined my first scrap metal company, you know, probably two thirds of it was from like movies of scrap yards. And I can't even say it was, oh goodness, I'm having a brain fart, but there was a Sanford and Son, right? Yeah. I didn't even watch that show that very much, right? Because I was a little bit too young for it when it was out, but my parents loved it. I really knew nothing about it. And but it's all around you. Now that I'm in the industry, you know, you can't drive on the highway for more than five minutes without seeing a truck pulling, you know, scrap metal. You and I, you, you may never notice it, but now I see nothing but it. So. Right, right. So, and I know you told me this back when we first met, but obviously you're in St. Louis. So how'd you choose the Houston area? So, um, it took a little while for me to figure out what I was going to do. Uh, you know, I left my previous company, which was an amazing company to work for and just great people and hard leaving for sure, without a really clear picture as to what I was going to do. But certainly, you know, a couple thoughts and what, what might happen. And, you know, at least a couple of those were built around, were potentially building some kind of greenfield facility. Not all of them were not necessarily what I ultimately did build. But if I was going to build a greenfield facility, I had to think about kind of where I would sell my materials associated with that greenfield facility. And in a general sense, there's, you know, a lot of scrap metal in the United States is in fact shipped to where manufacturing is done, which makes sense, right? You're, re you're manufacturing things with old things. That in today's world, or certainly in that world, really meant that a lot of scrap metal actually goes overseas to Asia and China, because that's where so much of world manufacturing is done. Right. But from the world is theoretically moving, and I think I certainly made my bet, is moving more and more towards manufacturing a bit more locally. And certainly, you know, in this world of difficult freight and all that kind of stuff, um, it sure is easier to sell something domestically. And so I was looking for a place that had access to both domestic homes and export ability homes, which meant somewhere near a large size port that still had significant manufacturing around it. Texas was a good bet for a number of reasons. Um, one, the port of Houston, but two, um, not technically domestic, but you know, the northern Mexico area is a huge manufacturing powerhouse. And certainly the southern United States is the same. Also, it's an area that, you know, both of them have seen a great deal of growth. And I'm not saying that Texas is, you know, new, <laughs> new to the world marketplace, but, you know, it's grown by so much that the industries and companies that, you know, were first put in place in the 50s, 60s, and 70s may not have been put in place in Texas because where automotive was at that time was, you know, the upper Midwest and, yep. you know, what we now call the Rust Belt. And so, as it turned out and as I kind of um, zeroed in on doing what I'm doing now, 
Texas wound up being just a great logistical home for what I wanted to do, coupled with certainly an extremely business-friendly environment. It made it for a fairly easy decision. You know, our big question was, okay, do we do Houston, San Antonio, Austin, Dallas? And we just kind of, or Houston, and we wound up here in the woodlands and largely on the basis of where we like, thought we would like to live the most and then figured the rest out from there. Nice. So, so what was like location two and three, not in Texas anyway, or were there? So locations two and three, not in Texas we're actually more aligned with doing something quite a bit different, which would have essentially have been raising money and buying an existing scrap metal operations facility. Mm-hmm. And that those were kind of all over the place. There was some in Ohio, in the Appalachian Valley, kind of in the kind of Rocky Mountain states, just on the basis of what was available to buy at the time. Hindsight being 2020, I don't know if I, uh, I would perhaps have wished I made a slightly different decision or would have liked to have at least reconsidered said the decision with some forward looking knowledge. But at the time in 2019, valuations for companies were, you know, kind of historically high. And so I was dissuaded from purchasing existing businesses just because, you know, historical earnings were strong and therefore EBITDA multiples on those earnings were you know, meant that high purchase prices. And, you know, while the logic is still sound, certainly sitting where I sit today, I probably would have paid back any one of those businesses in the last year. Right. <laughs> but you know, who could have, nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition or the COVID and post-COVID economy. So here we are. And, and you only get to buy it once, as my previous employer's owner has says, had said, and he's an incredibly smart and successful guy, and he's 100% correct. You only get to buy it once, so make sure you buy it right. So tell me about your family. Yeah, so I've got my wife, Angela, and two kids who are 15 and 13. We all moved down from St. Louis. Challenging for the kids, especially just because we'd lived in St. Louis in a lovely little near-city suburb called Kirkwood, for the bulk of their lives and certainly all their lives within memory, you know, and it was a great life in a great town and we loved everything about it really. So to pick up and move was challenging for all of us, but, you know, kids always feel things more challenging for them. They've situated themselves well here now, but I mean, certainly it's a rough transition and a not made easier by things like COVID lockdowns. Right. Um, but they, you know, my wife is, was, is incredibly supportive, probably more supportive than is, you know, reasonable in this crazy plan that, you know, we as a family had. And thank goodness it's worked out. And we're both super happy here. I mean, I, when we moved into our new house, like, and we're locked, we moved in like in, right around Valentine's Day, three weeks before the COVID lockdown. We were just commenting to ourselves that, you know, if you're going to be locked down somewhere, a swimming pool in the backyard that you can swim in in March is not the worst thing in the world. (laughs) So Angela's done a great job of kind of integrating us into our lives here. And I think it's, it's life is always a lot easier when things are great at home and you've got great kids and a 
great wife to kind of support you, support you through all that. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, for the other business owners out there or potential business owners out there that might be listening to this, you know, you came from being an employee co-founder type of scenario, which is common among many people and decide to start off on your own. You know, what are the top or five things or one thing that you would say you didn't know, you weren't sure of, but you figured out on the back end? I think I'm still figuring stuff out. Of course. So it's a little hard. I guess, what would I say? What did I really, what I wish I knew on the front end? I'll give you a little bit of context as to why I asked yeah. that. So one thing that I found was unique when you talk to me is many new business owners don't value or understand professional services very well. They eventually do, mm-hmm. right? But you <laughs> yeah. seem to spend a lot of time interviewing and attempting to understand and and try to surround yourself with the best professionals, especially from my perspective, from the CPA mm-hmm. and even the legal team that you, you know, went through mm-hmm. and used and so forth. So I thought that was very much higher level than I have typically seen in starting new businesses, you know, or people starting yeah. their own yeah. business and so forth. And so I'll give you some kudos there for spending the time to do that appropriately. And hopefully it's turned out or you've, you know, learned some sort of that. Yeah. But that being said, right, that was one thing that I think you probably knew you needed to do, but a lot of people don't. So that's sort of where that context comes from of, you know, what are the mm-hmm. things you knew you needed? And then what are the things that you didn't know, but now you've figured out? And there's always going to be yeah. future stuff too. So the things that I kind of, and you're right, that's a good example of something. Why did I make that choice on kind of, making sure I had high level professional services for support. It's because I know how to do the vast bulk of things in this business, right? I mean, you know this already, but I'm more or less my own accountant most of the time, right? Yep. Me and my bookkeeper close the books. When we have conversations, I would like to believe that you recognize that I generally know the directionality of what I'm talking about, but there's probably stuff I don't know especially as it pertains to, you know, investor funded small business startups. And since that was one of the first things I had to do, which was to, you know, attract investor dollars and bank loans and things like that, I wanted to make sure that I was talking to somebody that had gone through it before and really had a template for how to do it right. And if you recall, a lot of our early interviews between us and with my legal counsel were along those lines. And uh-huh. in both cases, I had a great deal of confidence because you both had a great deal of experience. You know, the kind of, there are aspects of professional services, which I consider this professional services, but that's probably not the clear definition of it. But things like when I've been doing engineering works, for construction activities, where I've probably been a lot more, I definitely have not worked to kind of get the toniest of people, right? I, I Absolutely, I did not go with the most brand name engineer or construction guy, because those are all things that I'm confident in my own ability to evaluate and kind of keep things on the 
on the level. I don't know if I could do that with legal and kind of complex financial accounting support. Not financial accounting is the wrong way to say it. Financial services support. And so where it was areas that I felt like, you know, I'm just never going to be that great in, I really tried to level that piece out with someone else. Similarly, from an HR perspective, we use a PEO, uh, Professional Employer Organization. I think that's what that stands for. Yeah, but essentially, yeah, we're, we're all employees, uh, myself included, of some other company that has 30,000 employees, but they're all like small little businesses like me. And they kind of use that purchasing power to provide effective and, you know, good health care benefits and also have, you know, HR staff on hand to help me work through, you know, any type of HR issues that come in because it's an area not of great, you know, experience of mine, though I have a fair bit of it, but I'm happy to kind of outsource the really hard stuff of that to somebody else. And that's, you know, a, a similar vein to my selection of you. In all three of those cases, I did a lot of interviewing and vetting, but without a doubt, I got super duper lucky too, right? If there was one <laughs> well, thing I'd tell people, Sometimes luck yeah. matters, right? Yeah. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, if there's one takeaway I have in this, just as with the rest of my life is, you know, you can work really hard and I work really hard. You can try to figure stuff out and you can, you know, just be a machine in terms of resourcefulness and just doggedness, you can do all those things. But man, so much of it comes down to luck. I think about, and you may remember this, we closed the loan package on this business, March 13, 2020, right? That was like the Black Friday of COVID, if you recall, right? Two days yeah. prior to that or something, they yeah. canceled the Houston Rodeo. That following Monday, you probably did not go into work and you didn't go back into work for freaking ages, right? Yeah. Um, and so the, the bank was like, well, are you sure you don't want to just close this on, a, on, you know, next Monday? I'm like, there is no effing way we are waiting till Monday. We're doing this first thing on Friday. So you got time to get the deed posted at the county courthouse because who knows what Monday's going to look like. And any number of things could have dragged that out by a week. And thankfully it didn't. And if it, dra- if it drug out by a couple of weeks, it would have drug out by three months. Yep. You know, nothing but luck. So much. There's so much. And I'm sure I'm not the only person who said this, but, you know, so much of success is luck, I think. Well, as my wife tells me, right, for the same Mm -hmm. reason, I I say the same thing. I've been in the right place at the right time. I consider myself lucky. And she said, well, it takes a little more than that, right? So, yes, luck does play a factor in making the right choices to be in the right place at the right time. And hindsight allows you to look back and say, well, that was lucky. And I think there's part of it there, but part of it also is the work hard, make choices, you know, sometimes take some risk and, or even in your case where you just described like pushing to get done by that Friday, because you just had Mm -hmm. that feeling, right. That something's crazy is going on. Let's get it done earlier rather than later. And looking back, then you go, sure, glad I did that. And that was lucky because otherwise it could have drug out another three months. 
Or if nothing happened and it was just a two week to flatten the curve situation, you would have never made that comment because it would have made no real big difference. Right. Yeah. So, that's a good point. I wouldn't have seen it as lucky. It would have just seemed like something that was forgettable and didn't matter. That's point. right. That's right. So yeah. it, it's a, I think it's a mixture of both. Right. But it does take the ability of, like you said, working hard, putting yourself in those places, also not being afraid to make the wrong decision, attempting to understand what you don't know and finding the people that do. And I think too often what I see from my perspective is people rely sometimes too much on a referral, right? So somebody's buddy or your cousin or your brother's uncle, right? Oh yeah, yeah, I use them and they're great. In whatever scenario, whatever service it is, whatever vendor it is, I'm not even just talking about CPAs or lawyers, right? Mm-hmm. No matter what, they use that referral and they hang their hat completely on it. And I've said it a yeah. lot of times because I get asked quite often about like financial advisors, Right. In fact, there was just a, a lady today or a, cu- a couple of days ago who posted on our neighborhood page looking for an advisor. And I responded with, OK, there's a lot that goes into it. And yes, I can appreciate a referral is important, but you need way more than that because there's so many different kinds and different ways. What do you actually need as opposed to, oh, yeah, my guy's great, does a great job for me. Well, that doesn't mean he's any good for you at all. But if you mm-hmm. just use that referral because you considered a trusted source, friend, family member, that doesn't mean you're getting what you need. And I think too often people don't take the time like you did to truly vet it, right? Mm-hmm. Truly, you know, and don't feel like just because you got that referral, you sort of have to give them your business because, mm-hmm. you know, my buddy does or whatever, right? You don't want to have that conflict of, well, why didn't you choose him? He's wonderful. I'm like, well, he just wasn't right for me. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. And as a professional who gets referred business, obviously, I feel the same way. Like, look, if this relationship isn't going to work, I'd rather it not work immediately than a year or two later. And for some reason, it doesn't work just because of personality difference. But I mean, even that can 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 cause it regardless of what your knowledge or ability is. So, you know, I, I think it comes down to taking the time, which a lot of new business owners don't because they feel like they have to go out and sell before they figure out Mm -hmm. how to run the company or what they need, right? That's one thing. And two is being able to actually know you can spend the money for what you need versus trying to do it cheaply because it'll just bite you in the end, you know, some, some time down the future. All right. Well, you know, Ronak, I mean, is there any other advice you want to give to somebody who's thinking about trying to jump off? Yeah. So I'd talk to your friends and business colleagues about what you're doing and kind of just listen and get some advice. Say where I am, and we both have, we're both here in this East Montgomery County Industrial Park once in a while, right? So you're aware of all the other small businesses that are here. Um, there's a few guys that have businesses here that I talk to and just bounce ideas off of. Hey, Jerry, how are you doing this? And hey, Corey, what are you guys using for you know, waste disposal, which is kind of funny thing for me to ask since I'm in the recycling industry for, you know, just kind of getting a dumpster put on your property and business owners always, as far as I can tell, 99% of the time want to help other business owners just because I think we all want to help other business owners. And I would take that into account. I owe a huge debt of gratitude and thanks to the many people that 
gave me advice as I was in the process of raising money, getting loans, envisioning the business as a whole. They did so, you know, soft and taking a lot of time to do so. And it was invaluable to me. And all because I asked and all because they were, you know, everybody's usually thrilled to talk about it. Spend that time to do it. I just strongly recommend it. And then one other thing that I remembered that I did that was, in fact, truly valuable is when I was trying to figure out, okay, do I want to leave my current job? You can really get in your head a lot about that kind of stuff. You know, hey, what do I want to do? What do I want to, you know, like, am I unhappy? Am I happy? But I really want to just kind of reach for the next thing. What is it? What I did is I actually kept a bit of a journal for about three, four months to kind of help me think through it. I just wrote about why I was thinking of doing what I was doing, what I would do, what it actually was, the pros and cons of it. I would sometimes write it out, realize that I was rambling on the paper, not being particularly well clear, and then kind of do a rewrite of the whole thing until it was clear to me written down which helped it become clear to me in my head. And that whole process helped a lot. I, Funnily enough, I just reread that journal. And it wasn't a lot, right? It was probably like 25 pages in a travel journal that I had last written in when I was in, you know, in like 2005, probably, just because I had a notebook and it was a good thing to write in. I reread it. And it was just very interesting to see how I was thinking at the time. And to reflect on, well, that kind of happened as I thought, or funny that I thought that at the time. It was worth doing, but I could see the value in having done the exercise of the writing at all. Um, It seems silly, but I'd recommend it. Something I wish I had done, just kind of adding on to that, is there's a, just while we're on the topic of podcasts, there's a podcast out there called Startup. It's by the guy who did the Planet Money podcast for Planet Money, and then started up his own podcasting business, real deal thing. And it went through him going through the whole startup process. You know, he had just quit, was starting to talk about what he wanted to do as a business, was talking to investors, how to find a co-founder, how to do this, how to do that. He went through so many of the same things I went through. I wish I'd listened to it before I'd kind of gone down the path because it was so entertaining to listen to after I'd probably myself gone through half of the podcast episodes (laughs) in my own real life. So just a few things at you that are, I think, worth thinking about. um, And I felt like helped me during that time. And I think that's great advice. And I think it even applies to an existing business owner thinking about starting another division or a new business, right? Because the same applies. It's going to take time, effort, and energy away from what you're existing doing. And it doesn't mean you have to stop what you're existing doing, but it's going to, you know, create a distraction. So should you, would you, could you, and something like a a, a little notebook, just to write it down, think about it, go back and forth, as opposed to making, you know, a brash or a rash decision. And then looking back and going, well, that was bad. Or looking back and go, Ooh, I got lucky that out, that worked out. Right. Mm-hmm. You can kind of bridge that gap a little bit with a little bit of time and, and again, asking other people in the similar industries. And, and you're right that people do generally like to help and they also like to talk about their own success and how they got there. Right. So 
Ronak, I really appreciate the time today. I hope the people listening, you know, made it all the way through or, or enjoyed your story. I know I did. And it's a very interesting to see how things get recycled in one little niche market. So I appreciate your time. Well, I appreciate the time as well. So it was really fun activity. Thanks, Jay. You're welcome. And there it is. Another fantastic episode. Don't forget to check out the show notes at maverickcpa.com, and you can find out more about all the ways we can help you at bakertilly.com. That's it for this episode. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you next time.